Well, good morning. Appreciate your patience with me as I acclimate myself to a new podium. Uh, I like your podium here. It's very handsome looking. I actually wrote an article uh, several years ago entitled Sacred Desk or Sacred Cow. And uh, that article was appreciated by some but not by others. Um, as you know, the Protestant Reformation um, took the pulpit and put it in the middle of the sanctuary because they wanted to make a statement that the word of God, the preaching of God's word, was to be central in the worship service rather than the, the sacraments, which had, they had the, the altar there before where they offered the, the sacraments, the, the uh, bread and the wine. Um, and so I, I think that's a good tradition, but I think what can happen over time and this happens in so many ways. We can take something that's a good tradition and we can begin to venerate it and treat it as if it were uh, some kind of divine sanction or stipulation in Scripture, um, giving it almost the same status as the Lord's table or baptism. It becomes sort of a sacrament. Then people come to your church and they begin to inspect and say, well, how big is that? How much does it weigh? Is it, is it central enough? And, uh, and if it's not... And I've seen this happen where people have gone to a church where they'll have a small, maybe even a plexiglass podium, or maybe even set the podium off to the side, and then the, the speaker comes from behind the podium to engage the audience. Sometimes people will say, well, they must not, be, uh, they must not have the conviction that the word of God is to be central. And so I wrote that article arguing that 40 minutes of a good sermon uh, says a lot more about the centrality of the word than a 400-pound piece of wood, all right? So this is just a circumstance, as the reformers would call it, circumstance of worship. It's just a place to put your notes and your Bible. Um, Jesus sometimes sat down to teach, and I don't think they carried around a wooden pulpit for him to use. Uh, and in fact, I tell somebody, you, you, you all know this, if you have the King James Version, I think uh, Ezra stood on the pulpit. So, you know, you might say, well, you really want to be biblical, you've got to get up here and stand up on this thing. But I don't, that would probably shock more people than help. So uh, hopefully, though, your conviction, and I believe it is from looking at your website, is that uh, what should be central is the exposition of God's word. Um, and that's what I tell people, relatives, friends, people I meet, meet to whom I witness. I try to encourage them to get into a church. They say, what church should I attend? There's so many. Well, Make sure it's a church that teaches the scriptures. Make sure that the teaching of scripture is central to the life of the church. And that even includes the songs that you sing. Because that's part of the ministry of the word is to minister in song, teaching one another through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And so the word of God should be central in the life of a church. Um, I am a native Californian. Grew up in Vacaville. Uh, was not converted until age 22, lived a really bad life, and I'm ashamed of that. But I'm not ashamed of God's grace that converted me at age 22. And then at age 23, I went to college in South Carolina where I met my wife, um, went to seminary, got married. We had five children. Uh, two of them are still in South Carolina. One's a graphic designer. Trying to get him to move out here, I said, you know, this is graphic design capital of the world here in California. 
But he says, well, Dad, it's also expensive to live there. So, and he's right. Um, but he's serving the Lord. He's serving in a church there. He uh, plays guitar in the evenings for their worship, and uh, God seems to be really blessing him. Um, our daughter, Hosanna, just uh, graduated from college. She's an English major. She's editing for World Magazine on the side and also editing for a major learning management system platform that my son actually works for. Uh, and they provide the learning management system delivery for our seminary. It's called Pathright. Um, and so they're both happy working in, those, in that venue. Um, three boys still live with us at home here in California. Our, our, the oldest of, of those three, James, just graduated from uh, Pioneer High School in Woodland. He's going to Davis, to UC Davis, hopefully this fall to do math as his major. We could have never afforded it, but thankfully did well enough in math to get a, a scholarship. And then two other sons in high school right now. Uh, you met one of them, Calvin. What do you think the other one's name? <laughs> yeah, Calvin and Hobbes. That's good. That's good. Now keep in mind, I'm a seminary dean, and I want to start a seminary, so, so it's probably not going to be Calvin and Hobbes, but rather... Who was the man to whom Calvin looked up to, as well as Luther, when they were trying to promote Reformation? There was one man that they appealed to quite often, a great theologian. Um, his name is Augustine. So we have an Augustine and a Calvin. And usually when we say that, everybody, oh, okay, we know why you did that. <laughs> but uh, I've told my boys they don't have to be seminary professors. Uh, they do whatever God has gifted them to do, and as long as they love the Lord Jesus and are serving the Lord Jesus, that's, that's what God wants them to be doing. So, amen. Well, it's good to be here. I do want to send greetings from Emmanuel Baptist Church. We do pray for you, as well as other churches in the Sacramento area on a regular, systematic basis, and so you're in our hearts. And I want to say I'm, I'm always thrilled to get to preach at another church, teach at another church, because it gives me the opportunity to meet God's people in different places. Um, it even gives me the opportunity to, to be exposed to different ways of worshiping God. I mean, they're basically all the same, fundamentally. We value the preaching of the word just like you do, but sometimes there's just little differences. I, I love the way that you guys have the prayers sprinkled throughout your service different types of prayers, prayers of praise, prayers of confession, prayers of petition. Um, I really like that. Um, my brother-in-law is a deacon at a Presbyterian church in North Carolina, and they do the same thing. They're very structured in the way they do that. Um, there's a purpose for all of that, and I, I, really, I really enjoy that. Um, so, again, it's, it's a blessing to be here. My wife would have been here, but she's playing piano this morning at IBC. My oldest son would have been here, but he's doing nursery at IBC. And then our middle son, Augustine, he works for, uh, what is it, uh, Panda Express. And so they, they're gracious to give him off time to either go to one of the two services. And normally it's the morning service he can attend, but this time they needed him in the morning. So he's going to go to the evening service tonight. But uh, anyway, we would have all liked to be here, but thankfully Calvin was able to be here. So, thank you very much. Really appreciate this opportunity. Well, let's turn our attention to God's Word, and, and let me just uh, 
say a brief, brief prayer to get my mind and your minds focused on this hour. Father, thank you for this privilege to be able to minister the word of God to your people. And I pray that your spirit would enlighten our eyes, that we would understand, incline our hearts that we might desire, and order our steps that we would walk in the ways of your commandments. We desire to glorify you in this facet of worship. And Lord, we desire that what happens here would affect the other six days of the week. That as we come to a better understanding of your word, we would be transformed. And that as we come to a deeper understanding of the topic we're about to consider, that it would affect us in terms of our own devotional walk with you, but also in terms of the ways in which we minister to other people in this world, which is uh, in desperate need of the gospel. And so bless us, we pray, by your spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. Perhaps the most uh, universally acknowledged and recognized reality in the world, apart from death, is the presence of moral evil in the world. Virtually every philosophy, every religion, every society acknowledges that there is a defect in humanity. This defect is often discussed in literature, on the 6 o'clock news, or in the coffee shop. It's found not only in prisons, but you can find it on elementary school playgrounds. It's committed by young and old, by rich and poor, by male and female, by religious people, and by atheists. I'm speaking of the universal reality of what the Bible refers to as sin. According to Scripture, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And this morning, I want us to reflect upon the topic of sin. In particular, I want us this morning to consider the nature of sin. What is sin? How should you and I, as we're interacting with our neighbors, our, our work associates, our friends, how should we describe this phenomena called sin? And before I attempt to answer that question this morning, I want to underscore the relevance of such a topic. Why should you and I spend 45 minutes or 50 minutes considering the topic of sin? Well, many reasons could be given, but let me just underscore three. We should consider the nature of sin, first of all, because our society is losing a proper understanding of sin. In 1993, a psychiatrist by the name of Carl Menninger published a book entitled, Whatever Became of Sin. And in that book, Menninger describes the subtle replacement of the terminology sin with other such words as crime, shortcoming, or even sickness. Menninger writes, it was about the turn of the century. Now keep in mind, he's writing in the 20th century, so he's talking about the turn from the transition from the 19th to the 20th century. He says it was about the turn of the century that a new social philosophy, a new code of morality, as it seemed, 
began to be manifest all over the earth. Sins had become crimes. And now crimes were becoming illnesses. In other words, whereas the police and judges had taken over from the clergy, the doctors and psychologists were now taking over from the police and judges. Unquote. Do you see his point? Society has taken, according to Menager, he's taken sin out of the ethical religious realm and has placed it into the physical genetic realm. We no longer need preachers that are calling men to repentance. Rather, Manager would say, we now need doctors and psychiatrists who have the ability to prescribe just the right pill. Now, keep in mind, Manager was a doctor. He wasn't denying the appropriate place for medication. Medication even for chemical imbalances in the brain. There's a place for that. But what he's pointing out is the tendency in our society society to erase or to eclipse the notion of sin and instead to replace it with the notion of sickness or of shortcomings. And so as his book goes on to demonstrate, our society desperately needs to recover a biblical concept of sin. People do get sick sometimes, but sickness does not absolve us from moral responsibility. But then also, secondly, we ought to consider this topic because we, even as Christians, we can lose sight of the gravity of our own remaining sin. I think you all would acknowledge that even when we become Christians, our sin is not completely eradicated. It doesn't disappear we still have what the theologians refer to as indwelling sin or remaining sin. And part of that remaining sin is the tendency still in us to excuse or minimize our sin. This doesn't usually happen at a theological level. At a theological level, we sing with gusto, amazing grace that saved a a wretch like me. We would still refer to the prophet Isaiah, all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. We affirm the doctrine of total depravity. We do that at least at a theoretical level, don't we? But what happens when a brother or sister confronts us after a morning service and wants to take us outside because they perceive that there's some, there's some remaining sin in our life that needs to be addressed? And so they confront us about it. And all of a sudden, our theoretical position on total depravity seems to dissipate. At least on a personal and practical level, we become defensive. We're not so bad. We're we're better than they think. And we end up taking our sin a little bit too lightly. We tend to minimize it or marginalize it. And so for this reason, brothers and sisters, I think it's good for us to come back to the Scriptures and to reconsider and to refresh our understanding on just how bad sin is and precisely what is the nature of sin. But then thirdly, we should take up this topic because the better we understand our sin, the more we're going to appreciate our desperate need for God's grace. And I'm not just talking here 
to those of you who may not yet be Christians. Certainly you do need God's grace, but those of us who already are Christians, we repeatedly need God's grace every day. And until we come to grips with our sin and see it for what it is, we're not going to feel that need. Why do you suppose the Pharisees rejected the Lord Jesus Christ as the Messiah, as the Savior of the world? I mean, we might give many responses to that question, but one response is that they failed to perceive the gravity of their own sin. When Jesus, for example, suggested to them that they were blind, they immediately retorted, no, we can see. And so Jesus goes on to say to them, if you were blind, you'd have no sin. But now you say, we see. Therefore, he says, your sin still remains. In other words, the Pharisees did not experience the power of a cleansed heart because they didn't believe their heart needed to be cleansed. And so it is with you and me. We're not going to experience God's grace in the gospel until we first appreciate and acknowledge the true nature of our sin. And consequently, I believe the more we appreciate the nature and gravity of our sin, the more glorious and, dare I say, the more attractive God's grace is going to be. And so do we want to know more about God's grace? Do we want to revel in God's grace? Do we want God's grace to be something for which we long and thirst? Well, if that's the case, and I believe it is, then it certainly will profit us to come to a deeper understanding of sin. And so with this in view, I want to consider the biblical nature of sin. How does the Bible describe sin? How does it depict sin? Now, throughout history, if you've done any reading, you know that theologians have offered different definitions of sin. Some describe it as pride. Some like to depict it primarily in terms of unbelief. Others maybe in terms of selfishness, and on and on it goes. Uh, I'm convinced, though, that there's really not one exclusive definition of sin. In fact, I think sin is like the term godliness, What is godliness? Well, godliness is multifaceted. We could describe it from all sorts of angles and perspectives. I think that's the same way it is with sin. And it's not surprising that the biblical writers sometimes depict sin from various angles or perspectives. We don't have time this morning to consider all of those angles and perspectives, but this morning I would just consider with you three. All right? You're not surprised, right? Preachers normally use the word three in their outline. So I'm going to follow that custom. Three perspectives on sin. And the first one is one that you're probably most familiar with. What is sin? Sin is a violation of God's moral law. Sin is a violation of God's moral law. Uh, You may be familiar with the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Catechism is kind of a question-answer way of teaching theology. And back in the 16th century, the Puritans um, authored, first of all, the larger catechism, which had larger questions and longer answers. But then they took that and they edited it to make it more concise into a shorter catechism. 
And that's the one that most people are familiar with. Well, question 14 of the Westminster Shorter Catechism reads, what is sin? And the answer to that question is, sin is any lack of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. And as the proof text for that uh, statement, 1 John 3, 4 is given. And 1 John 3, 4 reads as follows. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Okay? So, John says sin can be defined as follows. It's lawlessness, literally without law, disregarding the law. That's sin. Now, keep in mind, when John is talking about the law, he's not referring to the Roman law in that context. In fact, he's not even talking about all of the stipulations and religious traditions of the scribes and Pharisees. He has in mind nothing less than the law of God. It's the same thing Paul is referring to in Romans 8, 7, when he writes, The carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God. And there again, I think Paul's referring to the moral law of God. Those laws and commandments in Scripture which are abiding, which transcend uh, various epochs of redemptive history. Okay, so... That'd be a little bit different if we're talking about a moral law as opposed to a positive law, like, say, for example, don't eat pork. Uh, there was a time when people who were the people of God couldn't eat pork, okay? But that was limited to that epoch of redemptive history. A moral law is something like, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. Um, you shall not engage in false worship. Those are things that are abiding, that transcend various redemptive uh, periods in history. And so that's what Paul means when he says the carnal mind is at enmity against God. Why? Because it's not subject to these moral laws, the moral law of God. So sin, we could say, is a violation of God's law. Now, okay, that's great theologically, but what practical relevance does that have for us? Well, to begin with, it reminds us that we cannot define sin merely as a social construct. Rather, sin is primarily a theological concept. In other words, we cannot properly define sinful behavior without presupposing a personal sovereign God who has disclosed his revealed will for the human race. And even the atheist... Bertrand Russell acknowledged this reality when he writes, Although the sense of sin is easy to recognize and define, the concept of sin is obscure, especially if we attempt to interpret it in non-theological terms. So here Bertrand Russell is, he's an atheist, he's trying to push God out of the picture He's trying to deny God's existence, and he says, you know what? It's easy to define guilt, that sense of wrong and right. He says, we can define that, but he says, when we try to define sin itself with God out of the picture, it's kind of difficult to do that. 
And I want to suggest to you it's really impossible to do that. Because sin is primarily a a violation, not of human etiquette or human conventions or human stipulations or law. Sin is primarily an affront and a violation of God's own law. It's an affront against God. And that's why all attempts in modern society to define sin purely on a horizontal, horizontal level are doomed to failure. You know, modern society is, is that, what's that little, mm, that little sign, don't tread on me and I won't tread on you? Uh, it, it basically says that as long as you don't harm your neighbor and as long as your neighbor consents, it's, it's okay. And so as a result, by way of example, um, a person who can ga- engage in premarital sex as long as the other party consents or maybe homosexual behavior as long as the other party consents and it's not sin. But folks, I want to point out that the Bible's view of sin is much different than that. You remember when jo- uh, Potiphar's wife tried to seduce Joseph to lie with her, to commit adultery to her, Joseph responds to her by saying, how can I do this great wicked thing and sin against God? He wasn't denying that it would have been a sin against her and against her husband and against certain Egyptian societal norms. But what he was saying is that sin cannot be defined apart from God. In fact, sin is primarily an offense against God, a violation of God's will. This is the same thing that David points out in his penitential Psalm 51, where he's confessing his sin against Bathsheba and against Uriah. In verse 4 of that Psalm, he looks up to God and he says, against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. Again, David's not excusing the fact that he had actually sinned against Bathsheba against Uriah, against the Jewish people in general. But David is simply underscoring the fact that sin is primarily theological. It's a sin against our creator and our maker. And so we must define sin theologically as a violation of God's law. There's another practical ramification. Why is it it important for us to understand sin as a violation of God's law? Well, because if it is, then it would be vitally important for men to know God's law. Right? Remember the text that we read this morning, Romans chapter 3? In verse 20, that text says, through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And Paul goes on to further amplify that later in Romans chapter 7, verse 7, where he writes, If it had not been for the law, I would have not known sin. I would not known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. And so what Paul's saying is, look, my awareness of the law of God is what gave me an awareness of my sin. And of course, in that context, Romans 7, Paul's alluding to the law found in the what? The Decalogue, Ten Commandments. He was referring to the Tenth Commandment. And, and, and I think it could be said that in some respects, the Decalogue is a summary of God's moral law. Now, folks, if this is the case, if, if we need the law to help men see their sin so that they can see their need for the gospel, then therefore... 
we shouldn't be afraid in our preaching and teaching to expound what? The law of God, right? We need to be careful of the notion that exists in some circles today that says that the law is no longer relevant for the church. The law pertains to Israel. Or others might say, well, the law is there maybe for sinners, but not for saints. No, 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 we need it too. We need God to take the searchlight of the law and constantly shine it into the shadows of our heart to expose our sin. And consequently, brothers and sisters, I would even say that the law has a place in our evangelism. Now, we might come upon certain souls, like the Philippian jailer, whose conscience has already convicted him, and maybe he's heard people singing, thrown in jail, and he's heard the gospel through their singing, or maybe somebody else has witnessed to them, and we come upon him, and he's just basically saying, what must I do to be saved? He's already convicted of his sin. So I'm not suggesting that we say, well, okay, let me uh, uh, come to my church. We're going to have a, 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 a 30-week expositional series on the law. And then after those 30 weeks, then maybe we'll talk to you about the gospel. I'm not suggesting that, okay? What I am suggesting, though, is that before we can get people saved, we often have to get them lost. Because many people in our society that we confront, they, they think they're fine. We tell them about the love of God, we're anxious to do that, right? You know, I want to tell you about the love of God. God loves you. We, you know, didn't you see that big billboard? And so we're anxious to dr- jump right into the love of God. And, you know, they're thinking to themselves, well, of course. I mean, I'm a lovable person, right? It's not surprising. No news. And so with many of these people, we have to, first of all, expose their sin. Now, we don't want to preach Moses without preaching Christ. But in some cases, we don't want to be preaching Christ without also preaching Moses. And again, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm not saying we always have to do Old Testament and New Testament. But my point is simply we have to make sure they understand the gravity and nature of their sin. They have to see their need for the gospel before they're going to truly understand and embrace that gospel. As one preacher has said, the whispers of Calvary must not preclude the thunders of Sinai. And so for these reasons, it's important for us to view sin as a violation of God's law. But that's not the only way we can view and define sin. In the second place, we can view sin as a misrepresentation of God's character. A misrepresentation of God's character. It's important to realize that God's law is not some kind of arbitrary standard that he just simply imposes upon the human race. That God just sort of says, you know, let me come up with this sort of arbitrary list of rules for humans to keep, and that's going to be my law. But rather, as theologians point out, God's moral law is actually a reflection of God's moral character. And this fact is highlighted in Leviticus chapter 19. Leviticus chapter 19 Um, A passage where God is going to be really setting before the people of God various laws. Some of them moral, some of them civil, some of them ceremonial laws. But these are all stipulations and many of these laws are reflective of God's character. And so what he does in verse 2 is he kind of sets the stage 
by underscoring the connection between his laws and between his character. And he says it this way. You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. He's doing sometimes what maybe some of our parents fail to do. God is saying to the Israelites, look, I'm not going to just say, do as I say. I'm also going to say, I want you to be like me. I want you to reflect my character. Jesus himself would go on to say this on the Sermon on the Mount, which also, by the way, we have an exposition of God's moral law in the Beatitudes. And then Jesus goes on to distinguish God's moral expectations from those of the scribes of the Pharisees, where he keeps saying, you've heard it said, but I say unto you. But then he ends that section by saying, Matthew 5, 48, look, let me sum it up for you. You should be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now this fits, that is to say, this understanding of the connection between God's law and his character really fits with what the Bible teaches teaches us about human identity. Because according to Scripture, Genesis 1.26, you and I were created to be God's images. Right? Somebody says to you, what is a human being? Well, one of the best answers you can give is a human being is an image of God. And as an image of God, humans are created by God to be visible replicas of God and representatives of God upon the earth. And as representatives, we are to reflect certain things about God. And included among those various things we're to reflect are God's ethical character and attributes. Okay, and so uh, one of the primary things God wanted man to do upon the earth was to reflect his glory in the ethical religious realm. But Genesis chapter 3 tells us that man fell into sin. And though man continues to be the image of God in his fallen state, he's now an inaccurate image of God. And as an inaccurate image of God, listen to this, folks, we are actually misrepresenting God and slandering God's character in our attitudes and behavior when we sin. Now, that's pretty serious. We're not just violating God's law. We're misrepresenting God. We're slandering the creator who intended us to reflect his moral goodness. And for this reason, we can define sin as a misrepresentation of God's character, not just a failure to conform to his law, but a failure, listen to this, to live up to our identity, to live up to the capacity and calling of who we are. And we don't need to look at these two ideas as if they were mutually exclusive. As Alec Motier writes, Man is the living personal image of God. The law is the written perceptual image of God. The Lord longs for his people to live in his image, and to that end, he's given them his law. So the law really helps us understand what God is like, so that if we want to be like God, we can go to God's moral law and discern what God wants us to be like. And so failure to conform to God's law is as I say, to misrepresent, to slander his character. Remember, uh, what, what is it? Uh, Isaiah 43, 7, where God says to the Israelites, I have created you for my 
glory. And what he says to the Israelites would apply to uh, his new covenant people, the church. God created us, folks, for his glory. And when we sin, Paul says we fall short of the glory of God. That doesn't mean that we fail to achieve godhood status. Like some cults would teach. You know, they say, oh, we're, we're supposed to be little gods. No, that's not what Paul has in mind. Paul says you're not, when you sin, you're, you're not being godlike in the sense of being godly. In the sense of, of reflecting your father's moral character. And so, somebody says, what's the practical relevance of all of this? Well, it reminds us that sin is much more than violating ethical standards. Sin, listen to this, folks, it's a personal affront to our Heavenly Father. Proverbs 28.7 says, Whoever keeps the law is a discerning son, but the companion of gluttons shames his father. Many of us can think back to times when we made our earthly fathers proud by our behavior, our conduct, or maybe certain achievements that we did. And we remember making them proud. They said, they hugged us. They said, we're so proud of you. But sadly, we can also remember times where we brought our fathers shame. When I was growing up as a teenager, my father, he was not a Christian man. He was a drunkard. He cussed a lot. For many other sins he was guilty of. But by God's common grace, my father was in certain areas of his life a good man. He was a hard-working man. And words like begging, borrowing, stealing, they were kind of like foreign to his vocabulary. And I can still remember the day when I had to face my father and I had to disclose to him that I had just been busted for shoplifting. I was terrified, much more terrified than when I had to face the police. But folks, the terror was not so much related to the punishment. I knew I was going to get punished. I'd get some good licks for that. The, the terror was primarily due to the shame I knew that I had brought upon his reputation. Folks, do you realize the kind of shame that we brought upon our Heavenly Father's reputation? How much more even when we're believers, when we're Christians, when we know better and yet we go ahead and commit sin and repeatedly? That ought to grieve our hearts. And yet, folks, that's why it's so important for us to see sin not just as a violation of God's law, but as a personal affront to our loving Heavenly Father. Because when we view it in that way, hopefully it promotes within us greater remorse for our sin and a desire, like the prodigal son, to run back into the loving arms of our gracious, forgiving Father. And so sin is a violation of God's law. It is secondly, a misrepresentation and slander of His holy character. But then thirdly and finally, I want us to look at sin as a rejection of man's highest good. Sin is a rejection of man's highest good. Again, if I might appeal to the shorter catechism, 
The first question uh, reads, what is, do you know this one? What is the chief end of man? Answer, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Now, the first part of that answer corresponds well with what we've just said. As images of God, we are to glorify God by means of reflecting his glorious moral and ethical character. But then there's a second part. It goes on to say, and to enjoy him forever. And notice that these are not two separate, unrelated human responsibilities. He doesn't say, and the chief ends, plural of men, are this and that. But rather, the singular chief end is to glorify and to enjoy God forever. In fact, I think that's why Piper is somewhat justified to interpret the catechism as follows. The chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. Now, that is a profoundly amazing thought. I mean, I remember as a Christian coming across this catechism question and reflecting upon it and thinking to myself, wow, that's incredible. I've been created in order for enjoyment, the enjoyment of God forever and ever and ever. I mean, you know, being brought up in a more formal, uh, somewhat dead, religiously dead uh, church as a young man, I, I thought that true religion was to be unhappy, that heaven was going to be an unhappy place. And, and, and that's why I had a hard time feeling any kind of interest or attraction to the gospel or to heaven or anything like that. But, but now, coming across passages of Scripture where I was told that God wants us to be happy, thoroughly happy. And you see this, for example, in the Psalms. For example, uh, the psalmist, Psalm 27, verse 4, David is maybe out uh, engaged in battle on the army front, and he's uh, spending some time early in the morning with his devotions maybe, and he's writing down some thoughts, and he says this, One thing have I desired of the Lord, that shall I seek. By the way, that's something someone might write if they know that they might die that day. Okay? And so he's saying, man, if I could think of just one thing I'd want right now, this would be it. Listen to this. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Mom and dad, what would you say if you found a letter of one of your children, maybe someone who'd served in Iraq, maybe he was killed, and you found this letter, and, 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 he, and he had written in it, he says, kind of a journal, and he says, you know, there's one thing I wish I could have more than anything else. I want to be in God's house with God's people, listening to God's word, so that I might enjoy the beauty of God all the days of my life. Wouldn't that make you happy? But what's he talking about? He's talking about enjoying God, rejoicing in God, taking pleasure in God. Beholding the beauty of the Lord in his temple. He says something similar in Psalm 38, 34, verse 8, where now he's inviting God's people and he's saying, look, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who puts his trust in him. He's not just talking there about doctrine or theory, not even just practice, but experience. He's talking about the affections. He wants you to experience God, taste God, and see that he is enjoyable, that he's satisfying. 
that he meets the deepest longings of the human heart. And then there's Psalm 37, verse 4, one of my favorites. Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Now, don't understand that passage like some health, wealth, and prosperity people do, where they say, hey, you know, give God a little bit of time and delight over here, and then he'll get you that house and that new car and that trip to uh, the Bahamas. Uh, whatever you desire, he'll, do, he'll take care of that. Just, just give him a little bit of delight over here. No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying, look, you make God your chief delight. You make God your highest enjoyment, and all the desires of your heart are going to be taken care of. They're going to be fulfilled. And then what about Psalm 73, where Asaph, the psalmist, says, Whom have I in heaven but you? There's none on earth that I desire besides you. You are the strength of my heart, O Lord, and my portion forever and ever. And what we see in the Psalms is taken up by the apostles in the New Testament. Think of Paul's epistle of joy uh, to the Philippians, where Paul keeps repeating, uh, be joyful or rejoice, be happy. Okay, But now listen, folks. The Bible's not just encouraging us to be happy in and of itself. The Bible's encouraging us to be happy in God. So he says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. You say, but, uh, but Dr. Gonzalez, wait a minute. You don't understand. That would be fine if life's going well, uh, but it's much more difficult for me because I've got a chronic illness. I've got an unsafe spouse. I uh, just lost my house. I'm living in a rental, barely making ends meet. I've got maybe this chronic sickness I'm working through and this pain. So you don't understand it. I can't be happy. Well, the Bible says you can. Peter, writing to Christians who were undergoing great deal of hardship, affliction, persecution, says to them in 1 Peter 1.8, he says, though you do not now yet see him, He's talking about Jesus, and he's saying you're not yet in heaven, and you're suffering, and you don't see Jesus yet. He hasn't made a personal appearance in your jail cell. Nevertheless, believing, and look what he says. He doesn't just say you rejoice. He says you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Wow, you're not just happy. You're happy over the top. You're, you're fully satisfied. You're enjoying God, even in the midst of all these difficult trials. And my point, folks, is that these texts and others teach us that human happiness is a proper motivation. God has programmed us when he made us to be happy creatures, so long as we're seeking that happiness in God himself. And in case you're in any doubt about happiness as a motivation, let me just remind you that Jesus himself wanted to be happy. Even during his earthly ministry, Jesus wanted to be happy. Do you remember Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, where we're told how it was that Jesus was able to endure such suffering upon the cross? How did he do it? For the, not just, you know, abstract reward, not just recognition, uh, not just, you know, uh, promotion set before him, but for the joy set before him. 
the man Christ Jesus died for sinners. We have a wonderful commentary on that, by the way, in Psalm 16, written by David and yet ultimately referring to Jesus. And in that psalm, verse 9, the psalmist writes, Therefore my heart is glad, and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will rest in hope. Why? For you will not leave my soul in the grave, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. He goes on to say, You will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Isn't that incredible? Again, not just joy, but fullness of joy. Not just pleasures, but pleasures forevermore. And this has led the Christian apologist C.S. Lewis to assert, it is a Christian duty for everyone to be as happy as he can. And if you think that language is radical, listen to Jonathan Edwards who writes, People do not need and should not set any limitations to their spiritual and gracious appetites, but they should be endeavoring by all possible ways to inflame their desires and to obtain more spiritual pleasures. Again, folks, God made us to be happy. He designed us to enjoy him. In fact, uh, the Bible says God's going to judge us if we don't enjoy him. He warned the Israelites that he was going to judge them and punish them because they would not serve him with joy and gladness of heart. But here's where sin enters the picture. Sin is a refusal to make God our highest joy. Sin is seeking our greatest happiness in something else or someone else. You're familiar with the greatest commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and all of your strength. Where we sin, folks, where we fail to keep that commandment, is where we're giving all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength to other things besides God. Placing the pleasures of this world above the pleasures of God, whether it's sex, whether it's money, whether it's career, whether it's possessions, whether it's relationships with other humans. If we love any of these things more than God or more than Jesus Christ, we're committing sin. By the way, that's why Jesus says, if you want to come after me, you've got to hate your father, mother, sister, brother, spouse, etc. He doesn't really mean literally hate them, but what he means is that I've got to be supreme. You can't love them more than me if you want to follow me. And so sin is a rejection of our highest good. Now, what's the practical relevance of this kind of definition? Well, first of all, it highlights the absolute, can I say this word, stupidity of our sin. The absolute, and by the way, that's why the Bible often defines sin as folly. One of its favorite words for sin is folly. It's, it's folly or it's stupid because we're taking the greatest joy in the world conceivable and exchanging it for lesser joys. Uh, many of you are probably familiar with the Christian singer Stephen, uh, Stephen Curtis Chapman who wrote the song, uh, See the Glory. Okay, do you know that song? 
But, but Chapman underscores in that song the very thing we're talking about here, how that sin is exchanging lesser joys, or, or, or the greatest joy, rather, for lesser joys. And the refrain of that song goes like this. He says, sometimes it's like I'm playing Game Boy in the middle of the Grand Canyon. And for some of you young people, one time I was playing this game uh, with some young people in our church, and you have to write down anything you want, to person, place, or thing, and, and then they hand somebody the cards, he reads them off, and then you try to guess who said what. So I thought I'd throw them off, so I put Nintendo. And right off the bat, that's Dr. Gonzalez who said that. I said, how'd you guess that? They said, Nintendo, that's dated. You dated yourself by that. <laughs> okay, so Mr. Chapman's dating himself. Okay, playing Game Boy now, what is it now, Calvin? Or PS4, Xbox, something like that. Okay, but don't miss the point. So here he is with a little video game in his hand in the middle of the Grand Canyon. He's not even paying attention to the grandeur, the beauty of the Grand Canyon. He's distracted by this little video game. Or, he says, I'm eating uh, candy in a gourmet feast. You know, here's this sumptuous gourmet feast with all of these wonderful appetizers and main dishes and desserts, and he's just sitting there eating maybe some Skittles. Uh, and I realize there's probably some kids here who would say, oh, yeah, Skittles, that's good enough for me. Okay. He says, I'm waiting in a puddle when I could be swimming the ocean. Tell me, what's the deal with me? I know the time has come for me to wake up and see the glory. And folks, some of, some of us need to do that. We need to wake up, get out of our stupor, get our minds off of these lesser blessings of the world. We need to wake up and see the glory. Let me offer my own illustration as I was trying to think about illustrating this. Imagine that you have someone come to your door and they're there to offer you uh, two prizes or two rewards. And, and let's just say this is for real, okay? I know when you get people call you on the phone or send you a letter in the mail and they tell you about something you've won, you know, we're all skeptical. Yeah, we've been there before. Yeah, right. Okay, but this is for real, okay? No strings attached. And they say that your name's been chosen and you have these two choices. Okay, one of these is a map of the world, detailed, beautiful. Uh, it, it can be put up on your wall as a mural, um, has all sorts of, you know, pictures in it and names of the main cities, and uh, it's just absolutely gorgeous, okay? And, and in fact, it just happens to match the decor in your living room, and so you're excited, and, you know, you're like that uh, woman on uh, Napoleon Dynamite, I want that, Okay? If you haven't seen that, you don't know, but you tell your husband, I want that, okay? But then he says, but now wait a minute. Uh, the second prize is an all-expenses-paid 60-day vacation around the world. You'll be flying some, you'll be in a cruise ship, you'll be taking these different tours, all expenses paid. Nothing comes out of your pocket, there's no hidden fees. Uh, in fact... Because you might say, what? 60 days, that means I'm going to lose 60 days of what? They say, wait, we're going to take care of that. We're going to cover all the money you would have lost by missing work. In fact, we've already talked to your employer, and he says it's fine. You can miss it. Come back, you'll still have a job. All right? 
So there's the alternatives. Which one would you choose? How many of you would choose the, the all-expenses vacation paid trip around the world? How many the map? Okay, I realize there might be somebody that, you know, some, some of us just don't like to travel, okay? Uh, but folks, you get the point of the illustration? Do you realize that when we pursue sex, money, career, possessions, even human relationships above God, that we keep grasping the map? That we're finding our highest satisfaction in that little map? When we could be experiencing and enjoying so much more? You say, well, that, you know, that would be absolutely stupid for anybody to settle for the map. Well, don't you realize, folks, that sin is stupid? It's folly. It's exchanging lesser things for much greater things. And I think we need to see the folly of sin, and we need to help others to whom we're witnessing see the folly of their sin. God is so much better, so much bigger, so much more fulfilling. But then also, this definition of sin helps us understand the nature of true religion. Realize that true religion is not just believing the right things. It's not just saying the right things. It's not even just doing the right things. All those are components of true religion. But as Jonathan Edwards pointed out in his book, The Religious Affections, true religion, he says, in great part consists in holy affection. And therefore, we must not be satisfied with simply going through the motions. Listen, true religion is not just reading your Bible every day. It's not just going to church every Lord's Day. It's not just even just keeping out of trouble. True religion is heart motivation Godward. In fact, remember God's complaint about the Israelites in Isaiah chapter 29, verse 11, where he says, This people draws near to me with their lips. They come to church. They pray prayers, beautiful prayers. They sing hymns with great gusto. They maybe, quote unquote, fellowship with one another. They're talking about God. They're worshiping me with their lips, he says. But where's their heart? It's far from him. And by defining sin as a failure to pursue joy, God is our highest joy, it reminds us, folks, that true Christianity is heart religion. It's loving God. It's delighting in God. It's finding our satisfaction in God. And failure to do that is what the Bible calls sin. My goal this morning was to give us a fuller picture of sin. And I hope that I've achieve that goal, at least in some small measure. So that if somebody came up to you today and said, define sin or describe sin, you could do at least, give them at least what? Three definitions, right? Sin is what? A violation of God's law. Secondly, it's a misrepresentation of God's character. And thirdly, it is a failure to pursue God as our highest good. Now, folks, in light of that, do we now see our desperate condition and for God's mercy? Because how many of us fail to sin? We all sin, don't we? Right? 
I mean, in many ways, I hope that as you've heard this, it's not just sort of stimulated our intellects, but it's actually produced a degree of conviction in our hearts. We violate God's law every day. We misrepresent his character all the time. And we fail to treat him as our chief joy. But the good news, the good news for sinners like us is that we're the kinds of people Jesus came to save. He says in the gospel, look, I didn't come to call the righteous. I came to call sinners to repentance. I came to tell people, look, you need to face your sin. You need to acknowledge it as an affront against God. But then you need to turn from your sin and turn to me as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And if you do that, the Bible says, you'll receive complete pardon from your sin. God washes it away. God throws our sin behind his back. He puts it in the deepest parts of the sea, never to remember it anymore. There's that removal of guilt. There's that propitiation whereby the death of Christ appeases the wrath of God and satisfies his judgment. But there's even more than that, folks. You're here today. You've never trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior. God promises not only to forgive all of your sins, but to give you a new heart. A heart that will, for the first time, begin to delight in keeping God's commandments. It's not going to be a burden anymore. You're going to be like Jesus himself who says, Behold, it's written in the book of me, I delight to do your will, O my God, your laws within my heart. Moreover, you're going to want to reflect your Father's glory and your character and your actions, your attitude, your behavior. You're going to want to be like Jesus in the way that you live. And furthermore, you're going to find that the things of this world no longer satisfy the way that God satisfies. You're going to have a new heart that would be able to say, you know, if my house is taken away, if I lose a child in a car accident, if I even lose my own health, you'll be able to say, God is enough. God is enough. God is the strength of my life and my portion forever. May God be pleased, dear friends, to make that true of all of us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your kindness to us and your mercy. May you now write these truths upon our hearts and grave them upon our minds that we would not quickly forget them. And use your word, Lord, to conform our behavior, our attitudes, our thoughts, our affections to your will. In Jesus' name, amen.